Good morning. It is, it is a good morning to be together. I know I say that frequently when I speak, and I mean it. It's a wonderful day to be gathered together with uh, each other, enjoy the fellowship that we have uh, together, to be able to worship the Lord, remember the Lord Jesus in his death and his resurrection as we do in the first hour, and to dig into his word. So this morning, we're going to jump off from uh, a few uh, passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. Uh, We'll read the passages, we'll pray, and then we will uh, start going through. The first passage will be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. There is a term given for it. I should have written it down here. I don't remember what it is now. Uh, but it is, uh, it is the cornerstone, if you will, of Hebrew prayer. Deuteronomy in 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Next passage is in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and it'll be in verse 19. Jesus is with his disciples as part of what has become known as the Great Commission. And Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then the last verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, the last verse in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us regarding who you are. I would ask for myself as uh, we consider these passages as I go through this, that you would make your word clear. I pray for the intervention of the Holy Spirit to correct any issues, any error that I may speak in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. I just ask that you would speak through this. May your word speak. May the Lord Jesus be honored through if we ask it in his own name. Amen. Last week we started, and I mentioned it earlier, we started in a series, the chapel leadership, going through the Atlantic Gospel Chapel Statement of Faith. I don't know if you realize that we have a statement of faith, but we do. And it's good to have a statement of faith. And there are, this is uh, printed out. It's available for you on the table in the, in the back. And Alex began last week looking at what uh, the Scripture says regarding the Scripture. And this week, I'll be covering the second point of our statement of faith. And this is what it says. We believe there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, uh, our statement of faith 
provides a couple scripture passages to consider, one of which we looked at, actually both of them we uh, read this morning, Matthew 28, 19, and 2 Corinthians 13, and verse 14. And so this morning, the topic is on the Trinity. And this is a, a massive topic. And to try to cover it in a message that is roughly 35 minutes long is impossible to really do it any justice. And so uh, uh, I will do the best that I can. But what I want to consider this morning is the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical facts regarding the Trinity, and then the implications of the Trinity. And before digging in, I do want to get a couple things out of the way. And as I mentioned, in trying to cover the Trinity in such a short period of time, you could, you could spend a lifetime studying out the Trinity and only scratch the surface. So um, it's not only unmanageable to do this, it's impossible. The second thing that we need to consider as we consider the Trinity, and this causes some people to get tripped up with it, is Trinity is not a biblical word. Let that sink in. Trinity is not a biblical word. That is, it appears nowhere in the Scripture. We cannot look up a passage in Scripture and find anywhere that says the Trinity is this. That's what I mean by the Trinity is not a biblical word. Now, that trips some people up, and they say, well, you can't teach on the Trinity because the word's not in there. Hogwash. Okay. Um, but as words go, it is helpful in understanding the person and character of God and as we will see, that this word only gives us a partial picture. And finally, using uh, Charles Ryrie's uh, book, uh, Basic Theology, the doctrine of Trinity is not explicit in Scripture. Now, what do I mean by that? What does he mean by that? Explicit meaning characterized by full, clear expression. Now, we have other things in Scripture that are explicit. Things like the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, found in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. For all Scripture is God-breathed. That's an explicit teaching. We can't, we can't get away from that. It is explicit. Or the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's an explicit teaching, okay? That is an explicit teaching. We don't have passages like that regarding the Trinity. The Trinity is this, the Trinity you know, that we would get that from. However, having said all that, the doctrine of the Trinity is one that grows out of Scripture. Again, going from uh, uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, his work, uh, A Survey of Doctrine, he wrote this. And we'll actually, I'll actually consider uh, this in its fullest context later. He wrote this, As we read the Bible, certain astounding facts confront us and demand our attention. And considering the facts regarding the Trinity, he goes on and he says, he asks the question, now how do you put those facts together? The reality is, the truth is, while the, while the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicit in Scripture, there are facts regarding 
the character and nature of God that demand our attention, that we have to deal with. And so that's what we're going to try to attempt to do this morning. And so to, to borrow from what uh, Charles Ryrie says, that how the doctrine of the Trinity has come about and how we understand it is by putting together the facts of Scripture. And so as we uh, introduce the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, I want to I first look at uh, how others have put together the facts from Scripture. One person wrote uh, this, B.B. Warfield, uh, there is one and only true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. In other words, there's one God, but is revealed as three distinct persons, all of which are of the same essential nature of God, but distinct in their necessary existence. John Calvin wrote this, Indeed, there is no doubt that Christ willed by this solemn pronouncement to testify that the perfect light of faith was manifested when he said, Baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. For this means precisely to be baptized into the name of the one God who has shown himself with complete clarity in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Hence, it is quite clear that in God's essence reside three persons in whom one God is known. What else is this than to testify clearly that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God? Therefore, since that there, are, there is one God, not more, is regarded as a, as a settled principle, we conclude that word and spirit are nothing else than the very essence of God. A 4th century Archbishop, Archbishop of Constantinople, I can't talk this morning, I guess, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, I don't know that much about him other than, as I understand, he was an ardent defender of the Trinity. He wrote this. Now this is coming back from the 4th century. I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three, nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the one. Three in one. Now that's something for you and me, to be honest, we can't wrap our little minds around it, can we? Not, not completely. We may get a little, a little glimpse of it. And finally, going back to Charles Ryrie, I'm going I'm to read, if you bear with me. Uh, it's a little bit longer portion, but I liked what he had to say. And this, if, if you don't have a copy of this, of this book, I think it's actually a very good one, a, sur a Survey of Bible Doctrine. He has another larger book that he did, uh, a book on systematic theology called Basic Theology. It's much thicker, and this really boils things down pretty well. And he asked the question, what, what is the Trinity? And some of these things I've already considered. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Indeed, many think it is a poor word to use to try to describe this particular teaching of the Bible. Actually, it describes only half of the teaching. The reason will become clear shortly. When you study a book like this, regarding this type of book, a survey of doctrine, uh, it may appear to you that the writer or the church or somebody else is saying to you, here are the doctrines, believe them. 
If that's the case, it is only because you are looking at the results of someone's study, not the process of it. We are not saying, here are some doctrines to be believed, whether you like it or not, but rather, here are some facts to be faced. How would you harmonize and organize them? The teaching on the Trinity is a good illustration of this point. You have probably heard lessons on the Trinity in which you are taught only the results, that the one God exists in three persons. Then you asked for illustrations and got none that were satisfying. So he concluded that there was a doctrine that you were expected to believe regardless. Actually, the way we ought to go about it is this. As we read the Bible, certain astounding facts confront us and demand our attention. Specifically, the Bible seems to say clearly that there is only one true God, but it also seems to say with equal clarity that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who claimed equality with God, and there is someone called the Holy Spirit who is also equal with God. Now, how do you put those facts together? The way conservatives have put them together results in the doctrine of the Trinity. Others have put these facts together and have come up with a different expression of God, as, uh, as have come up with a different idea of the Trinity, the person being modes of expression of God and not distinct persons, and still others rejecting the claims of Christ and the Spirit to be God, become Unitarians. But the claims are still there in the Bible, and the need for packaging them is what we study in this section. And then I'll finish with this. Any concept of the Trinity must be carefully balanced, for it must maintain on the one side the unity of God and on the other the distinctness and equality of the persons. That is why the Trinity only tells half the doctrine, the threeness part and not the unity. Perhaps the word triunity is better since it contains both ideas, tri, the threeness, and the unity, the oneness. That's quite, a, that's quite a mouthful to go through. But he's really getting down to boiling it down. What we see in Scripture, these pesky little facts that keep confronting us from Scripture. One God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. We can't get away from it. We have to deal with that. And so to, buy, to borrow from Ryrie and others, we are really talking about a triunity. Now, I will always be referring to this as a trinity because if I'm going to say trinity over and over again, it's a little bit easier to say than triunity, okay? But, uh, and I have difficult enough time speaking as it is, so my tongue gets a little bit tied every, every now and then. Uh, so uh, moving on. Want to consider the biblical facts regarding the Trinity. As Ryrie mentioned, we have to consider there are facts about the nature of God that we have to consider. And throughout Scripture, there's the idea that we have uh, as we study Scripture is the idea of progressive revelation. That is, throughout history, God has revealed more and more of Himself. As, as I thought about this, my as and this is a poor analogy uh, in the way we teach children. I think about uh, my dear wife, Heather, who works as a paraeducator in the first grade. Now, do you think that in the first grade that they jump right in as they are considering reading and they say, here's Homer's Odyssey, read this. They at least wait until the second grade for that. But, but uh, uh, when we teach our children, we start with basic ideas and concepts, don't we? And then we build on those things. 
And once those are grasped, once those concepts are grasped, we add more. Now, again, this is a poor analogy in understanding progressive revelation, but hopefully you get the point. He, didn't, he, didn't, he doesn't reveal everything about himself and, you know, there it is. But we have it progressively, and it builds on itself throughout the scriptures. So he reveals more and more and more of himself throughout the scriptures. And the point here is that the facts of the Trinity throughout Scripture have been progressively revealed to us. And so to build upon this, I want to consider first what some of the passages in the Old Testament uh, say about uh, the nature of God. And again, because of the, the nature of this topic, I'm not going to have a whole lot of time uh, or, the, to be honest with you, the, the intellect to actually be able to dig very deeply into these things. Uh, but they are some of the facts to consider. So we'll consider Old Testament passages first, and then we'll go on to New Testament passages. And so some of the Old Testament passages to consider. The first passage considers the, the oneness of God. And this was our first passage that we considered this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Again, where we read, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, or the Lord, is our God. Yahweh is one. And the first thing we see is that the, the unity of God, there is one God. It rules out any idea of polytheism. And some would accuse uh, the church of being polytheistic. Well, you believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, we don't. Because the scripture clearly says there is one God. And that is what we believe. That is what is taught. There is one God. In Exodus chapter 20, when, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he started this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, of, of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One God. Only one God. And again in Deuteronomy in chapter 4 and verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other besides him. One God. But we also see in the Old Testament, we begin to see the development of the distinctions between the persons and the Godhead in the Old Testament. And some of these on a, on a more basic level and some a little bit, a little bit deeper. In passages like Genesis 1.26 and also in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, in Genesis 1, in the creation account, it says this in verse 26 regarding the creation of man. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. You got one God, one person, but he's using plural pronouns, plural verbs. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And likewise, in Genesis eleven seven at the Tower of Babel, as they saw what these people were doing and building this tower, trying to build their own way to God, ultimately, and he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Now, regarding the Son, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David wrote this, Yahweh, that is the Lord, said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. Now Jesus referred to this passage, if you remember when the Pharisees and the the Jews were accusing him of blasphemy. You're making yourself out to be God. And he said, well, how is it then that David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord? To whom was he speaking? Of whom was he speaking? And here we have Yahweh, the covenant name for God, speaking to the Lord. We see the the distinctions in the Godhead on display. Again, regarding the, the distinction, the distinctiveness of the Son, Isaiah chapter 59 in verses 15 and following, the, the prophet laments that in, in Isaiah's words, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. And he continues, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins answer against us. And then he writes in verse 15, then Yahweh saw and it was evil in his eyes that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, that is the Lord's own arm, brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Now, first of all, you notice here it says that Yahweh's own arm brought salvation. This is the work of the Lord. Salvation is a work of the Lord. But then in this section, in verse 20 of Isaiah, Yahweh is speaking. And he says this, A redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. This is one that is separate from the understanding of the Lord. There's a distinction there, a distinctiveness there. It's just been said that Yahweh brings salvation, and yet now he's saying that the redeemer is the one who is going to bring salvation. Again, that distinction in persons in the Godhead. And in the context of the passage, the Redeemer is one who is equal with himself because he is the one who will bring salvation. Then moving on regarding the Holy Spirit, again in Isaiah 59, Yahweh continues, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your seed, nor from the mouth of your seed's seed, says Yahweh, from now and forever. My spirit, which is upon you. A distinction that is there. Isaiah chapter 48 Yahweh is putting forth his sovereignty over the land, including his sovereign will and calling Babylon as as his instrument of judgment. And in verse 16, Yahweh calls, or the Lord calls to his children, Draw to me, hear this, from the first I have not spoken in secret, from the time it took place, I was there. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. And I would submit... We kind of see three there. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. Again, these are just 
a few passages in the Old Testament. They may not even be the best passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to, I'm going to admit that right up front. But we see one God, but we see a distinction in persons operating. And again, it's, for me, it's just mind-blowing. I cannot wrap my little head around this. Turning to the Old, or excuse me, turning to the New Testament. Again, as we consider the oneness or the unique nature of God, and as with the Old Testament, the New Testament writers recognize the oneness of God. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, Paul writes uh, in verses 4 through 6, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Again, we see the oneness of God, one God, only one God. And yet, even in this passage, we see that distinction between Father and Son when he wrote, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And just as with the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are uh, passages that call to mind the distinctive persons in the Godhead. And I would submit, in thinking about that progressive revelation, they become even even clearer in in the New Testament. Consider the various passages where Jesus claims equality with God. In John 5.17, Jesus' response to the Jews' persecution of him for healing on the Sabbath, he healed a lame man on the Sabbath, and of course they were grumbling against him because, well, he broke the Sabbath. And Jesus says this, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now for us, we, sometimes we kind of read over this, But the Jews got it very clear what Jesus was claiming. Because the very next verse, it says that therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he called God his father, therefore making himself equal with God. I remember when I was was in college and I was one of those that fell into this. Well, Jesus never made any claims to be God. Sure he did. Over and over again. I and the Father are one. Even in this passage here, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying. Again, in John's Gospel, in chapter 8 and verse 58, this uh, one that is well known, before Abraham was, I am. He was taking upon himself the name Yahweh. The Jews knew full well what he was doing. He was claiming to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is uh, before the high priest after, after his arrest and the sham of the trials that he was going through, and, the, and they, they asked him and said, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And his response is, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now that phrase, son of man, that's a clear tie back to Daniel chapter 7. And even the, 
especially when he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's directly from Daniel chapter 7, where it speaks of there is one that I saw like a Son of Man coming, and it talks about dominion being given to him. And in all ways, he is equal with God and identifies him as divine. Jesus never claimed to be God? No. Regarding the Holy Spirit, in John 14, Jesus uh, spoke to his disciples. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And here we have Jesus, the Son, speaking of the Father, who will send another helper, that is the Holy Spirit. And that word, another, refers to another of the same kind. And note that this also includes the eternal nature of the Spirit. He says that he may be with you forever. And so therefore, Jesus is claiming that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in nature. And then going to, again, to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, this is where Jesus is with his disciples in, in Galilee. These are the last passages, the last, last verses in uh, Matthew's gospel. And so this is between his crucifixion and, and his ascension. And he begins by telling his disciples, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Clear claim to deity. Then he commands them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And again, going to what Ryrie has to say about this passage, regarding uh, Matthew 28 and verse 19 says, this verse best states both the oneness and threeness by associating equally the three persons and uniting them in one singular name. And finally, in the New Testament, consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter opens up his, this epistle to the churches in Asia. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. So here we see all three persons of the Godhead in view and all three involved with the work of salvation. Now, with the time that we have left, I want to consider what some of the implications are of the Trinity. Now, first, as people like to say, God is love. And I hadn't thought about this before. I heard a message uh, several weeks ago, listened to a message regarding the, the Trinity. And he made this point. I hadn't thought about this before. The love of God can only be understood within the context of the Trinity. I hadn't thought about that before. 
And the reason for that is, it said, uh, uh, because God exists for all eternity as three persons, his essential nature is one of loving community. To say that there are not three persons in the Godhead, then where does the love of God come from? It would be something that would be outside himself. And he would have to say, well, okay, this is, this is something that I choose to be. No. Or this is something I choose to exercise. But the love of God, because he is that three in one, is essential to his nature. That's why love is one of his attributes. God is love. Consider Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 Verses 22 and 23, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And this is, a, this is the, the clincher here. And loved them even as you loved me. Now think about that, if you will. Isn't that an incredible prayer of the Lord Jesus that we would know that God loves us in the same way that he loves his son that's what we have in Jesus Christ the love of God poured out on us the same love that he has for his son and so if he only existed as one person this is impossible Jesus could not say that This is also why I think that Paul in Galatians 5 wrote this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because that is the nature of who God is. It's therefore part of our new nature in the Spirit for those who have trusted Christ. Second implication of the Trinity is the importance of community in the life of the believer. Again, going back to uh, John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, going back up a verse, and I'll read again the, the same portion, but uh, emphasize different portions of it. Jesus prays that they, may be all, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So again, that they may all be one, just as you and I are one that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. I recently heard of a writer within the church somewhere in the, in the third, somewhere in the third or fifth centuries, and I don't remember his name. I should have written it down but he described the Trinity as a dance, and he coined a term from which we get our word choreography. And the idea is of this community, this loving community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through all eternity, loving one another, circling around one another, and this beautifully choreographed dance, glorifying one another. It's mind-blowing. As I thought about this aspect, I pictured some of the dances that are, that are uh, depicted in some of the period uh, movies. I, 
uh, especially of uh, some of the scenes like in Jane Austen and others where they have a scene where there's a dance and oftentimes you see the, the, the dance partners as they move across the floor, they're constantly moving in toward one another, away, in, circling around one another. That's maybe a poor picture, but a picture of what we have in the Trinity. And this is what the church is called to be. Think about passages in, in uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Those are the four passages regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts were given according to the grace of God for the building up of the body. For the building up of the body, the importance of the community for the believer. The third implication is the importance and the dignity of the individual. While the unity or the community of the Trinity is displayed in the oneness of God, we also maintain that each member of the Trinity is distinct from one another, each with his own personality, not divided, but distinct. And again, thinking about uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians 12 with the, uh, regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, those members of the body which we think is less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. The importance of the individual within this body cannot be overshadowed, cannot be ignored. And finally, I want to think about the Trinity regarding our salvation. What did it mean to the Trinity. Think about Genesis chapter 15. I won't turn there. I think it's a passage that is familiar to most of us. In Genesis 15, we have Abram with God, and Abram has been waiting for 10 years for this child, still no son, and he says, Lord, I don't have an heir, so I'll take one in my household. He will be my heir, but the Lord promises him. He says, no, one from your seed, one from your own flesh, he shall be your heir. And Abram says, first it says that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then Abram asked the question, but how can I know? How can I know this? And the Lord instructs Abram. He says, go out and he said, get, get all these animals. It included a, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram knew exactly what the Lord was doing. Without further instruction, Abram goes, he gets those animals, he brings them together, he kills them, he cuts them in two, and he sets one half opposite the other. He said, the Lord is making a covenant with me. This is a contract. Now, this is the way the contracts were made in, in the ancient days. Now, they took contracts pretty seriously because what they, what they would do, and I know this has been mentioned before, they, they would cut the animals, they would split them in two, and you think about the, the ancient world where a lot of times they had, and this was pointed out in the, that the world may know video series, they would have their, their long robes that they would wear in the, in the desert heat that, that would actually make them quite cool. Um, and so they... They would split these animals. They would have a trough between the animals, and, and so the blood would run into this trough, and you would walk between those animals, the blood running into that trough that you're walking through. And so as you're walking, 
your, your robe is getting dragged through this blood. You can imagine probably being kicked up. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When you walk through mud and you're you know, thinking, okay, I've got, I've got clean, clean clothes on. I'm walking through mud. I'm going to try to walk really carefully so I don't splatter myself with mud. And you come in, and what do you have all over your pants? Mud. This is how contracts were ratified. But in this case, Abram goes into this deep, deep sleep. That was from the Lord. And he has this vision, the Lord passing through these animals. It's as if to say, if I break the terms of this covenant, may I be ripped apart. As one, as one uh, uh, preacher put it, may my, may my permanence suffer impermanence. But Abram never passes through. As if to say, and even if you, Abram, break the words of this covenant, may what has been done to these animals may, may be done to me. I will be torn apart for you if you break the words of this covenant. Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, experienced something he never experienced before in all of eternity. And I've shared this before. He was alone. Completely and utterly alone. It was, as it were, as if the Trinity ripped apart, just like those animals back in Genesis 15. Not suggesting to you that there was any damage done to the Trinity, but that the experience of it was there. That's what the Trinity means to the Lord regarding our salvation. He did that for you and for me. For the purpose that through the sacrifice of the Son, we would be brought into the relationship of the Trinity so that what Jesus prayed to his Father would come to pass. Now, when I say brought into the relationship of the Trinity, I'm not saying that we are now part of the Trinity, part of God. I'm not in any way saying that. But I'm echoing what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that they may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. This is a topic that is beyond the scope of any mortal man to be able to fully grasp and, and fully cover. But Father, I pray that your word would be what is ringing in our ears and in our hearts this morning.
as we consider the person of the Trinity and all that means. We thank you for that one, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who took upon himself the form of man so that he could suffer to the point of death on the cross. We thank you that because of that, we, if we will accept that free gift of salvation, that we will now know the love of the Father for the Son. It's the same love poured out for each one of us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.